Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is Starship Sova. Everyone, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show number 119. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is... Fine and dandy. Yes, today is the start of something or two things that are new on the show. And whether I'll run them in on the same show in the future, that remains to be seen. I haven't quite worked it out, but I thought I'd kind of, you know, showcase them today and just give a, you know, test the waters, as I say, and just see how you feel. So today is the first day that I'm starting the old school versus new school, where I take like one of the writers from the kind of the golden times, what we like, class as the golden times, or really anything, any kind of writer's story that, you know, was in that past, you know, kind of came from, you know, the likes of amazing stories, analog, right in the past there, that's up actually free on Gutenberg, and put it up against like a, a, a story that's been kind of kicking around a day, and it doesn't have to be like kind of, because that would be quite difficult for us, it doesn't have to be exactly, you know, brand new, red hot, out out of the doors, out of the stable this year. You know, the first one up is by Nina Kariki Hoffman. I think it came out in 2002. You know, so they're not kind of right at the pinnacle of being brand new, but there's certainly, you know, there are, there's a few years gap in between. And like I say, I'm calling it old school, new school. If there's if there's a better name out there, because at the minute that doesn't sound too good for this kind of this style show. Do you know what I mean? And the intention is to kind of do it once a month, you know, to see how it how it develops, how it goes on. I'll give you a little heads up what else is coming in the show, and we'll crack on, and hopefully you'll kind of like this. We have the editorial by my good self, and that again is just really explaining, you know, the old school, new school, and. The new, another new little section in there, which is Starship Sova's interrogations. We have the weekly science fiction news that's been kicking around on the website. Then we jump into one of the main fictions, which is the great, the, you know, the, the giant in his field. You know, start off with a bang, John W. Campbell. He's got a story out called The Last, he's got a story out. He had a story out, The Last Evolution. That's in. Then we jump into Starship Sova's interrogation, and it'll be myself interrogating Lucius Shepard. Then we get on to another main fiction, which will be Nina Kariki Hoffman's Not Work. And like I say, whether these two new sections in the show are going to run on the same time, you know, at the moment in my Google Calendar, I've planned it where they're separate. The idea is the beginning of the month will be old school, new school, and then maybe the week after, you know, the second week, we'll have in, we'll drop in there the interrogation. So that is it. We'll jump straight into the editorial. 
And like, just, you know, as if there's a, if there's a imagine opening an imaginary door. Oh, hey, right, I said it's Oriel time. Da, 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 da. Sorry, sorry. Too much caffeine uh, kicking in. So editorial is, give you a kind of rundown of these two new sections. And like I say, the first one, you know, you know, know about it really. Old school, new school. And it's just really, you know, there will be a poll. That's, that's the kind of one of the main things. If you go on the front of the website, there will be a poll in the actual post. So you can kind of vote on which is the best one. And there'll be a poll in kind of the sidebar as well. So I'll get Josh to kind of do that. Josh, get that sorted out for us before this show goes up. So there'll be a vote, you know, so you can, over that month, you've got a chance. And it's, like I say, it's just something to kind of get where, you know, talking and get where kind of, you know, as a, as a kind of group, more, not motivated, certainly not that, but just a little bit of involvement. Do you know what I mean? And just say which one comes out first, you know what I mean? And some weeks, you know, like I say, I've been reading these old style stories and there's some cracking ones in there. Will they kind of knock the socks off, you know, these young pups or, you know, vice versa? And the poll would last for that particular show for a month. I can set it, Josh has kind of set it up like a plug-in, and I can run it for a month. So in next, kind of next month's show, I'll, you know, before the kind of start of the show, or probably in the editorial, I'll give the winner of last month's, you know, which one we all kind of liked. And again, it'll be in the forums as well, so you can kind of go in the forums and vote there as well. So hopefully that's just something new, a little kind of fresh little idea to keep, you know, to make this show what it is. Now, the next little section, or the, the next new kind of little bit that I've devised, is Starships Over Interrogations. And the idea is with interrogations is, you know, picture Starships Over, picture the actual ship. She's a big girl. She's a, she's a hefty beast, and there's many, many rooms. Loads of places where stowaways, this is the idea, loads of places where stowaways can kind of just sneak on, do you know what I mean, and just kind of... Grab yourself a free ride. And science fiction writers are known for kind of, you know, trying to get, get on there and get, get our ride for free. So I've devised and through Twitter and through, I think it was the forums as well, ask for like science fiction questions. Just if you're going to ask a question for a science fiction writer, you know, one question, what would it be? I got all these science fiction questions and I've kind of whittled down, chopped them out, changed them, waffled them down waffled them down, turned them round and got these kind of, the final 15. So in this show, this show today, we have Lucius Shepard caught him stowing away on the good ship Starship Sova and I'm going to ask him these 15 questions. And the idea is, you know, because I can let you know, as you know, I can waffle, you know what I mean? God give us one gift, he give us that one, I can kind of waffle on. But, and I'm finding it actually hard, I don't want to all I want to do is ask these 15 questions. I want the kind of the writers just to kind of either, what's the best word, kind of live or die by these questions. You know what I mean? If they're just saying yes, no, well, that, that's all I want and that's all that'll get up there. I do want to kind of lead them on with other questions. You know what I mean? So all you'll hear from me really, and I could, what I could quite easily do is just cut and paste the, the, from day one, the, my words into each other's, you know, each different writer's, Questions, you know, that's it. That's the task for me is to kind of just make myself or myself say those questions. And these are the questions that I've got lined up. First one, are you a science fiction writer? Next one, tell me about your childhood. How did you get started in the science fiction genre? 
What single science fiction writer most influenced your own style? Which book by another author do you wish you had written? What would be the one question you would ask a science fiction writer? For what reason do you write science fiction in preference to other classes of literature? What one aspect of science fiction writing is the most difficult? Does it get any easier? Describe your daily working day. What's the strangest thing you've ever done while researching? Do you think science fiction as a genre is different from other genres? What do you consider the chief value of science fiction? Has science fiction ever disappointed you? And the last one is, is there still new ground to be covered in science fiction literature? So those are the 15 questions up to date. You know, like I say, a court, Lucius Shepard in there. Now, it's Tuesday morning at the minute, and it's 9 o'clock in the morning when I'm recording this, this show. I haven't recorded Lucius's go yet. I'm getting a few others, you know what I mean? But I always kind of wanted Lucius Shepard to kind of kick off, you know what I mean? He's, he's one of these writers, I think... Stands out a bit of enigma in the kind of science fiction field. You know what I mean? He's got stories going around. He's had some, like, you know, he's, he's in there with the, the masterworks, classics. He's got a classic story in there. Life during wartime. You know, and it was one of them things that like, I would like to kind of kick off with. If <laughs> we get halfway through this show and it's suddenly someone else, then you think, oh, the Tony didn't make that call. So hopefully, you know, I'm going to get Lucius on the line later on today, tonight, and record this, then kind of insert it in. So that's the idea for... Starship Sova's interrogations. So we'll kick off with what's kind of been happening in the news today. And we found out the horrible news that Cage Baker passed away on January the 31st. And it, you know, I mean, everyone kind of who knew Cage, you know, knew there was, you know, it was coming. But like I say, this is just a, a gut wrenching bit of news that I've heard, you know what I mean, Cage Baker was so, you know, I would drop her an email, you know, and, you know, and basically I'm asking for a free story there, you know, and, but Cage was lovely every time she wrote back to us, you know what I mean, and was more than happy to let our stories go up there, you know, and just a lovely person and some great writing, the stories she's given Starship so far, and the stories I've still got, you know, kind of ready to roll are just, you know, an amazing set of stories, we will deeply miss Cage Baker. If anybody's interested in M. John Harrison, he reviews Plan for Case by John Wildham. This is where, you know, one of the ideas was kind of old school, new school, was, you know, I played up M. John Harrison's story against Ken Scholes' story. And I just thought, you know what I mean? Look, I got a couple of emails saying, you know, they prefer the kind of the literary style of M. John Harrison. Well, just if you want to go and, you know, read his review... And M. John Harrison says, you know, despite its academic interest, Plan for Chaos is almost an unreadable book. It comes with an introduction by Christopher Priest, which is, is a good deal more interesting than his book itself. Do you know what I mean? So he cuts no corners there, M. John Harrison. Do look out for that review. BBC News is saying that Sir Terry Pratchett says he's ready to give a test case for assisted suicide tribunals, which could give people legal permission to end their lives. The author who, who actually has got Alzheimer's says he wants to set up a tribunal to help those with incurable diseases at the end of their lives with help from doctors. There's actually a poll on the BBC site suggests that most people support assisted suicides as well for, for someone who is terminally ill. 
final bit of news this week is, and it's a good place to go just for, you know, browsing anything science fiction. Locust Online, this is the website for the magazine Locust. They've got their recommended reading list for, you know, 2009. And it's just, it's actually, it's, it's just their, you know, take on things, but there's some great stories in there, some great recommendations, you know, and it, it, it covers novels, science fiction novels, it covers fantasy novels, it covers young adult books, first novels, collections, anthologies, anthology reprints, originals. It actually covers as well novellas, novelettes and short stories. You know, so it's, it's loads to dip into there. And actually that's going to be a good place for me <laughs> just to dip into, oh, that story, right. I'll just tap you along there and ask that writer. So do have a look at, over at Locust. You know, there's some, like I say, some great, you know, if you're, if you're, not that you're kind of struggling for ideas, but, you know, there's some great stories out there and there's links to them as well, which is a great thing. I will put a link on to these little thing, things I've mentioned in the site in the, the show notes, if I can remember. But that is this week's show news. So this is The Clash, the start of The Clash from Old School, New School. I hope you enjoyed. The first one is The Last Evolution by, like I say, John W. Campbell Jr. Jr., don't forget as well. John W. Campbell Jr., as we all know, you know, born 1910, died 1971. You know, you kind of get more influential, you know, figure in American science fiction at the time. You know, the the guy was the kind of, the, the, the chief Pinnacle of the pile, you know, editor of Astounding Science Fiction. Later, later kind of that changed his name to Analog Science Fiction. He was the editor there from th- 1937 until his death in kind of 71. Do you know what I mean? It's just an amazing stretch of time to kind of be into the kind of science fiction business, you know. And he was the one, you know, the, he was the kind of the golden age of science fiction. He was the kind of spearhead of that as well. Isaac Asimov actually said about him, Campbell was the most powerful force in science fiction ever, and for the first 10 years of his editorship, he dominated the field completely. You know, there was no t- kind of touch in this guy. But before he kind of came this powerhouse in the kind of editorial side of things, you know what I mean? Like I said, this guy's a god to me. I mean, this is the where I look up to. You know, this is the kind of the person that kind of I would not want to be, you know, like want to emulate. You know what I mean? It's just like you, you kind of get better than him if you know, kind of if you've got them kind of twinkling stars towards editor, you know, being an editor. But before all that, you know, he, he did write some stories. You know, he, he was kind of like a, a writer. You know, and odd odd times you'd put stories out as Don A. Stewart. But he, he kind of stopped all that when he became this kind of fiction editor for Astounding. But like I say, this story came out in 1932, The Last Evolution. It's narrated by, you know, none other than J.J. Campanella. And that's what I'm quite really proud about. You know what I mean? Like I say, Jim's come on there and, and narrated this story. And I've had this story for a while. And then it's all just kind of somehow fitted together, do you know what I mean, to, to do these kind of, these classics, you know, against the kind of the new school stuff. And it's nice to have our interpretation, you know, get some of the kind of best narrators I can find out there, you know, and, and get these old style ones narrated and played on the show. It's just amazing. Like I say, to kick off with J.J. Campanella doing this narration is just fantastic. So the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present, my God, the Last Evolution by John W. Campbell Jr. I am the last of my type, existing today in all the solar system. I, too, am the last existing who, in memory, 
sees the struggle for this system. And in memory I am still close to the center of rulers. For mine was the ruling type then. But I will pass soon, and with me will pass the last of my kind, a poor, inefficient type. But yet the creators of those who are now, and will be, long after I pass forever. So I am setting down my record on the Mentatype. It was 2,538 years after the year of the Son of Man. For six centuries mankind had been developing machines. The ear apparatus was discovered as early as 700 years before. The eye came later. The brain came much later. But by 2,500 the machines had been developed to think and act and work with perfect independence. Man lived on the products of the machine, and the machines lived to themselves very happily and contentedly. Machines are designed to help and cooperate. It was easy to do the simple duties they needed to do that men might live well, and men had created them. Most of mankind were quite useless, for they lived in a world where no productive work was necessary. But games, athletic contests, adventure, these were the things they sought for their pleasure. Some of the poor types of man gave themselves up wholly to pleasure and idleness, and to emotions. But man was a sturdy race, which had fought for existence through a million years, and the training of a million years does not slough quickly from any life-form, so their energies were bent to mock battles now, since real ones no longer existed. Up to the year 2100, the numbers of mankind had increased rapidly and continuously, but from that time on, there was a steady decrease. By 2500, their number was a scant two million, out of a population that once totaled many hundreds of millions, and was close to ten billion in 2100. Some few of these remaining two million devoted themselves to the adventure of discovery and exploration of places unseen, of other worlds and other planets. But fewer still devoted themselves to the highest adventure, the unseen places of the mind. Machines with their irrefutable logic, the cold preciseness of figures, the tireless, utterly exact observation, their absolute knowledge of mathematics. They could elaborate any idea, however simple its beginning, and reach the conclusion. From any three facts, they even then could have built in mind all the universe. Machines had imagination of the ideal sort, they had the ability to construct a necessary future result from a present fact. But man had imagination of a different kind. Theirs was the illogical, brilliant imagination that sees the future result vaguely, without knowing the why nor the how, an imagination that outstrips the machine in its preciseness. Man might reach the conclusion more swiftly, but the machine always reached the conclusion eventually and it was always the correct conclusion. By leaps and bounds man advanced, 
By steady, irresistible steps, the machine marched forward. Together, man and machine were striding through science irresistibly. Then came the outsiders. Whence they came, neither machine nor man ever learned, save only that they came from beyond the outermost planet, from some other sun, Sirius, Alpha Centauri, perhaps. First a thin scout line of a hundred great ships, mighty torpedoes of the void, a thousand kilads in length they came. And one machine returning from Mars to Earth was instrumental in its first discovery. The transport machine's brain ceased to radiate its sensations, and the control in old Chicago knew immediately that some unperceived body had destroyed it. An investigation machine was instantly dispatched from Deimos, and it maintained an acceleration of 1,000 units. They sighted ten huge ships, one of which was already grappling the smaller transport machine. The entire fore section had been blasted away. The investigation machine, scarcely three inches in diameter, crept into the shattered hull and investigated. It was quickly evident that the damage was caused by a fusing ray. Strange life-forms were crawling about the ship, protected by flexible, transparent suits. Their bodies were short and squat, four-limbed and evidently powerful. They, like insects, were equipped with a thick, durable exoskeleton, horny, brownish coating that covered arms and legs and head. Their arms projected slightly, protected by horny, protruding walls, eyes that were capable of movement in every direction, and there were three of them, set at equal distances apart. The tiny investigation machine hurled itself violently at one of the beings, crashing against the transparent covering, flexing it, and striking the being inside with terrific force. Hurled from his position, he fell end over end across the weightless ship, but despite the blow he was not hurt. The investigator passed to the power room, ahead of the outsiders who were anxiously trying to learn the reason for their companion's plight. Directed by the center of rulers, the investigator sought the power room and relayed the control signals from the ruler's brains. The ship brain had been destroyed, but the controls were still readily workable. Quickly they were shot home, and the enormous plungers shut. A combination was arranged so that the machine as well as the investigator and the outsiders were destroyed. A second investigator, which had started when the plan was decided on, had now arrived. The outsider's ship nearest the transport machine had been badly damaged, and the investigator entered the broken side. The scenes were, of course, remembered by the memory minds, back on Earth, tuned with that of the investigator. The investigator flashed down corridors, searching quickly for the apparatus room. It was soon seen that with them the machine was practically unintelligent, very few machines of even slight intelligence being used. Then it became evident, by the excited action of the men of the ship, that the presence of the investigator had been detected. Perhaps it was the control impulses, or the signal impulses it emitted. 
They searched for the tiny bit of metal and crystal for some time before they found it, and in the meantime it was plain that the power these outsiders used was not, as was ours of the time, the power of blasting atoms, but the greater power of disintegrating matter. The findings of this tiny investigating machine were very important. Finally, they succeeded in locating the investigator, and one of the outsiders appeared armed with a peculiar projector. A bluish beam snapped out, and the tiny machine went blank. The fleet was surrounded by thousands of the tiny machines by this time, and the outsiders were badly confused by their presence, as it became difficult to locate them in the confusion of signal impulses. They started at once for Earth. The science investigators had been present toward the last, and I am there now, in memory with my two friends, long since departed. They were the greatest human science investigators, Roal, 25374, and Trest, 35429. Roal had quickly assured us that these outsiders had come for invasion. There had been no wars on the planets before that time in the direct memory of the machines, and it was difficult that these who were conceived and built for cooperation, helpfulness, utterly dependent on cooperation, unable to exist independently as were humans, that these life-forms should care to destroy, merely that they might possess. It would have been easier to divide the works and the products, but life alone can understand life. So Roal was believed. From investigations, machines were prepared that were capable of producing considerable destruction. Torpedoes, being our principal weapon, were equipped with such atomic explosives as had been developed for blasting, a highly effective induction heat ray developed for furnaces being installed in some small machines made for the purpose in the few hours we had before the enemy reached Earth. In common with all life-forms, they were able to withstand only very meager Earth acceleration. A range of perhaps four units was their limit, and it took several hours to reach the planet. I still believe the reception was a warm one. Our machines met them beyond the orbit of Luna, and the directed torpedoes sailed at the hundred great ships. They were thrown aside by a magnetic field surrounding the ship, but were redirected instantly and continued to approach. However, some beams reached out and destroyed them by instant volatilization. But they attacked at such numbers that fully half the fleet was destroyed by their explosions before the induction beam fleet arrived. These beams were, to our amazement, quite useless, being instantly absorbed by a force screen, and the remaining ships sailed on undisturbed, our torpedoes being exhausted. Several investigator machines sent out for the purpose soon discovered the secret of the force screen, and while being destroyed, were able to send back signals up to the moment of annihilation. A few investigators thrown into the heat beam of the enemy reported it identical with ours, explaining why they had been prepared for this form of attack. Signals were being radiated from the remaining fifty along a beam. Several investigators were sent along these beams, speeding back at great acceleration. Then the enemy reached Earth. 
Instantly they settled over the Colorado settlement, the Sahara colony, and the Gobi colony. Enormous diffused beams were set to work, and we saw through the machine screens that all humans within these ranges were being killed instantly by the faintly greenish beams. Despite the fact that any life form killed normally can be revived, unless affected by the dissolution common to living tissue, these could not be brought back to life again. The important cell communication channels, the nerves, had been literally burnt out. The complicated system of nerves called the brain, situated in the uppermost extremity of the human life form, had been utterly destroyed. Every form of life, microscopic, even submicroscopic, was annihilated. Trees, grass, every living thing was gone from that territory. Only the machines remained, for they, working entirely without vital chemical forces necessary to life, were left uninjured, but neither plant nor animal was left. The pale green rays swept on, and in an hour three more colonies of humans had been destroyed. Then the torpedoes that the machines were turning out again came into action. Almost desperately the machines drove them at the outsiders in defense of their masters and creators, mankind. The last of the outsiders was down, the last ship a crumpled wreck. Now the machines began to study them, and never could humans have studied them as the machines did. Scores of great transports arrived, carrying swiftly the slower-moving science investigators. From them came the machine investigators and the human investigators. Tiny investigator spheres wormed their way where none others could reach, and silently the silence investigators watched. Hour after hour they sat watching the flashing, changing screens, calling each other's attention to this or that. In an incredibly short time, the bodies of the outsiders began to decay, and the humans were forced to demand their removal. The machines were unaffected by them, but the rapid change told them why it was that so thorough an execution was necessary. The foreign bacteria were already at work on totally unresisting tissue. It was Roal who sent the first thoughts among the gathered men. It is evident. He began, that the machines must defend man. Man is defenseless. He is destroyed by these beams. While the machines are unharmed, uninterrupted, life, cruel life, has shown its tendencies. They have come here to take over these planets, and have started out with the first natural moves of any invading life form. They are destroying the life, the intelligent life particularly, that is here now. He gave vent to that little chuckle which is the human sign of amusement and pleasure. They are destroying the intelligent life, and leaving untouched that which is necessary, their deadliest enemy, the machines. You, machines, are far more intelligent than we even now, and capable of changing overnight, capable of infinite adaptation to circumstance, you live as readily on Pluto as on Mercury or Earth. Any place is a home world to you. You can adapt yourselves to any condition. And, most dangerous to them, you can do it instantly, 
you are their most deadly enemies, and they realize it. They have no intelligent machines. Probably they can conceive of none. When you attack them, they merely say, the life form of Earth is sending out controlled machines. We will find good machines we can use. They do not conceive that those machines which they hope to use are attacking them. Attack, therefore. We can readily solve the hidden secret of their force screen. He was interrupted. One of the newest science machines was speaking. The secret of the force screen is simple. A small ray machine, which had landed near, rose into the air at the command of the scientist machine. X5638 it was and trained upon it the deadly induction beam. Already, with his parts, X5638 had constructed the defensive apparatus, for the ray fell harmlessly from his screen. Very good, said Broald softly. It is done, and therein lies their danger. Already it is done. Man is a poor thing, unable to change himself in a period of less than thousands of years. Already you have changed yourself. I noticed your weaving tentacles in your force beams. You transmuted elements of soil for it. Correct, replied X5638. But still we are helpless. We have not the power to combat their machines. They use the ultimate energy known to exist for six hundred years, and still untapped by us. Our screens cannot be so powerful our beams so effective. What of that? asked Roal. Their generators were automatically destroyed with the capture of their ship, replied X-6349. As you know, we know nothing of their system. Then we must find it for ourselves, replied Trest. The life beams, asked Kosh-256799, one of the man-rulers. They affect chemical action, retarding it greatly in exothermic action, speeding greatly endothermic actions, answered X-6221, the greatest of the chemist investigators. The system we do not know. Their minds cannot be read. They cannot be restored to life. So we cannot learn from them. Man is doomed if these machines cannot be stopped, said CR-21, present chief of the machine rulers in the vibrationally correct, emotionless tones of all the race of machines. Let us concentrate on the two problems of stopping the beams and the ultimate energy till the reinforcements still several days away can arrive. For the investigators had sent back the saddening news. A force of nearly ten thousand great ships was still to come. In the great laboratories, the scientists reassembled, there they fell to work in two small and one large group. One small group investigated the secret of the ultimate energy of annihilation of matter under Roal. Another investigated the beams under Trest. But under the direction of MX-3401, nearly all the machines worked on a single great plan. The usual driving and lifting units were there, but a vastly greater dome case far more powerful energy generators, far greater force-beam controls were used, and more tentacles were built on the framework. Then all worked, and gradually, 
in the great dome case there was stacked the memory units of the new type, and into these fed all the sensation ideas of all the science machines, till nearly a tenth of them were used. Countless billions of different factors on which to work, countless trillions of facts to combine and recombine in the extrapolation that is imagination. Then, a widely different type of thought combine, and a greater sense receptor. It was a new brain machine, new for it was totally different, working with all the vast knowledge accumulated in six centuries of intelligent research by man, and a century of research by man and machine. No one branch, but all physics, all chemistry, all life knowledge, all science was in it. A day, and it was finished. Slowly the rhythm of thought was increased, till the slight quiver of consciousness was reached. Then came the beating drum of intelligence, the radiation of its yet uncontrolled thoughts. Quickly, as the strings of its infinite knowledge combined, the radiation ceased. It gazed about it, and all things were familiar in its memory. Roal was lying quietly on a couch. He was thinking deeply, and yet not with the logical trains of thought that machines must follow. Roal, your thoughts, called F1, the new machine. Roal sat up. Ah, you have gained consciousness. I have. You thought of hydrogen. Your thoughts ran swiftly and illogically, it seemed. But I followed slowly, and find you were right. Hydrogen is the start. What is your thought? Roal's eyes dreamed. In human eyes there was always the expression of thought that machines never show. Hydrogen, an atom in space, but a single proton, but a single electron, each indestructible, each mutually destroying, yet never do they collide. Never in all science, when even electrons bombard atoms, with the awful expelling force of the exploding atom behind them, never do they reach the proton to touch and annihilate it. Yet, the proton is positive and attracts the electron's negative charge. A hydrogen atom, its electron far from the proton falls in, and from it there goes a flash of radiation, and the electron is nearer to the proton in a new orbit. Another flash, it is nearer always falling near, and only constant force will keep it from falling to that one state. Then, for some reason, no more does it drop, blocked, held by some imponderable yet impenetrable wall. What is that wall? Why? Electric force curves space. As the two come near, the forces become terrific. The nearer they are, the more terrific. Perhaps if it passed within that forbidden territory, the proton and the electron curve space beyond all bounds and are in a new space. Roal's soft voice dropped to nothing, and his eyes dreamed. F1 hummed softly in its new-made mechanism. Suddenly, force shafts gleamed out. Tentacles became writhing masses of rubber-covered metal, weaving in some infinite pattern, weaving in flashing speed, while the whir of air sucked into a transmutation field, 
whined and howled about the writhing mass. Fierce beams of force drove and pushed at a rapidly materializing something, while the hum of the powerful generators within the shining cylinder of F-1 waxed and waned. Flashes of fierce flame, sudden crashing arcs that glowed and snapped in the steady light of the laboratory, and glimpses of white-hot metal supported on beams of force. The sputter of welding, the whine of transmuted air, and the hum of powerful generators. Blasting atoms were there, all combined to a weird symphony of light and dark, of sound and quiet. About F-1 were clustered floating tiers of science machines, watching steadily. The tentacles writhed once more, straightened, and rolled back. The whine of the generators softened to a sigh, and but three beams of force held the structure of glowing bluish metal. It was a small thing, scarcely half the size of Roal. From it curled three thin tentacles of the same bluish metal. Suddenly, the generators within F-1 seemed to roar to life. An enormous aura of white light surrounded the small torpedo of metal, and it was shot through with crackling streamers of blue lightning. Lightning cracked and roared from F-1 to the ground near him, and to one machine which had come too close. Suddenly there was a dull snap, and F-1 fell heavily to the floor. Beside him fell the fused, distorted mass of metal that had been a science machine. But before them the small torpedo still floated, held now on its own power. From it came waves of thought, the waves that man and machine alike could understand. F-1 has destroyed his generators. They can be repaired. His rhythm can be re-established. It is not worth it. My type is better. F-1 has done his work. See? From the floating machine there broke a stream of brilliant light that floated like some cloud of luminescence down a straight channel. It flooded F-1, and as it touched it, F-1 seemed to flow into it and float back along it in atomic sections. In seconds the mass of metal was gone. It is impossible to use that more rapidly, however, lest the matter disintegrate instantly to energy. The ultimate energy, which is in me, is generated. F-1 has done its work, and the memory stacks that he has put in me are electronic, not atomic as they are in you, nor molecular as in man. The capacity of mine are unlimited. Already they hold all memories of all things each of you has done, known, and seen. I shall make others of my type. Again, that weird process began. But now there were no flashing tentacles. There was only the weird glow of forces that played with and laughed at matter and its futilely resisting electrons. Lurid flares of energy shot up. Now and again they played over the fighting, mingling, dancing forces. Then suddenly the whine of transmuted air died, and again the forces strained. A small cylinder, 
smaller even than its creator, floated where the forces had danced. The problem has been solved, F2? asked Rual. It is done, Rual. The ultimate energy is at our disposal, replied F2. This I have made is not a scientist. It is a coordinator machine. A ruler. F2. Only a part of the problem is solved. Half of half of the beams of death are not yet stopped. And we have the attack system, said the ruler machine. Force played from it, and on its sides appeared C-R-U-1, in dully glowing golden light. Bring a life form for testing, and we shall see it, said F-2. Minutes later, a life-form investigator came with a small cage, which held a guinea pig. Forces played about the base of F-2, and moments later came a pale green beam therefrom. It passed through the guinea pig, and the little animal fell dead. At least we have the beam. I can see no screen for this beam. I believe there is none. Let machines be made and attack that enemy life-form. Machines can do things much more quickly, and with fuller cooperation than man ever could. In a matter of hours, under the direction of CRU-1, they had built a great automatic machine on the clear, bare surface of the rock. In hours more, thousands of the tiny, material-energy-driven machines were floating up and out. Dawn was breaking again over Denver, where this work had been done when the main force of the enemy drew near Earth. It was a warm welcome they were to get, for nearly ten thousand of the tiny ships flew up and out from Earth to meet them, each a living thing unto itself, each willing and ready to sacrifice itself for the whole. Ten thousand giant ships, shining dully in the radiance of a far-off blue-white sun, met ten thousand tiny darting motes, Ten thousand tiny machine ships, capable of maneuvering far more rapidly than the giants. Tremendous induction beams snapped out through the dark, star-flecked space, to meet tremendous screens that threw them back and checked them. Then all the awful power of annihilating matter was thrown against them, and titanic, flaming screens reeled back under the force of the beams, and the screens of the ships from outside flamed gradually violet, then blue, orange, red. The interference was getting broader and ever less effective. Their own beams were held back by the very screens that checked the enemy beams, and not for the briefest instant could matter resist that terrible driving beam. For F-1 had discovered a far more efficient release generator than had the outsiders. These tiny dancing motes that hung now motionlessly, grim, beside some giant ship, could generate all the power they themselves were capable of. And within them strange horny-skinned men worked and slaved as they fed giant machines. Poor inefficient giants. Gradually these giants warmed, grew hotter, and the screened ships grew hotter as the overloaded generators warmed them. 
Billions of flaming horsepower flared into wasted space, twisting space in its mad conflict. Gradually, the flaming orange of the screen was dying, and flecks and spots appeared so dully red they seemed black. The greenish beams had been striving to kill the life that was in the machines, but it was life invulnerable to these beams. Powerful radio interference vainly attempted to stem imagined control, and still these intelligent machines clung grimly on. But there had not been quite ten thousand of the tiny machines, and some few free ships had turned to the help of their attacked sister ships, and one after another the terrestrial machines were vanishing in puffs of incandescent vapor. Then... From one after another of the Earth ships, in quick succession, a new ray reached out, the ray of green radiance that killed all life forms, and ship after ship of that interstellar host was dead and lifeless. Dozens, till suddenly they ceased to feel those beams, as a strange curtain of waving blankness spread out from the ships, and both Induction beam and death beam alike turned as aside, each becoming useless. From the outsiders came beams, for now that their slowly created screen of blackness was up, they could work through it, while they remained shielded perfectly. Now it was the screens of the earth machines that flamed in defense, as at the one command they darted suddenly toward the ship each attacked, nearer then the watchers from a distance saw them disappear, and the screens back on Earth went suddenly blank. Half an hour later, 9,636 Titanic ships moved majestically on. They swept over Earth in a great line, a line that reached from pole to pole, and from each the pale green beams reached down, and all life beneath them was swept out of existence. In Denver, two humans watched the screens that showed the movement of the death and instant destruction. Ship after ship of the enemy was falling, as hundreds of the terrestrial machines concentrated all their enormous energies on a screen of blankness. I think, Raval, that this is the end, said Trest. The end of man. Roal's eyes were dreaming again. But not the end of evolution. The children of men still live. The machines will go on. Not of man's flesh, but of a better flesh. A flesh that knows no sickness and no decay. A flesh that spends no thousands of years in advancing a step in its full evolution, but overnight leaps ahead to new heights. Last night we saw it leap ahead, as it discovered the secret that had baffled man for seven centuries, and me for one and a half. I have lived a century and a half, surely a good life, and a life a man of six centuries ago would have called full. We will go now. The beams will reach us in half an hour. Silently, the two watched the flickering screens. Roal turned as six large machines floated into the room following F-2. Roal, Trest, I was mistaken when I said no screen could stop that beam of death. 
They had the screen. I have found it too, but too late. These machines I have made myself. Two lives alone they can protect, for not even their power is sufficient for more. Perhaps, perhaps they may fail. The six machines ranged themselves about the two humans, and a deep-toned hum came from them. Gradually a cloud of blankness grew, a cloud like some smoke that hung about them. Swiftly it intensified. The beams will be here in another five minutes, said Trest quietly. The screen will be ready in two, answered F2. The cloudiness was solidifying, and now strangely it wavered and thin as it spread out across, and like a growing canopy it arced over them. In two minutes it was a solid black dome that reached over them and curved down to the ground about them. Beyond it nothing was visible. Within only the screens glowed still, wired through the screen. The beams appeared, and swiftly they drew closer. They struck, and as Trest and Roar looked, the dome quivered and bellied inward under them. F2 was busy. A new machine was appearing under his lightning force beams. In moments more of it was complete, and sending a strange violet beam upwards toward the roof. Outside, more of the green beams were concentrating on this point of resistance. More. More. The violet beams spread across the canopy of blackness, supporting it against the pressing, driving rays of pale green. Then the gathering fleet was driven off, just as it seemed that that hopeless, futile curtain must break and admit a flood of destroying rays. Great ray projectors on the ground drove their terrible energies through the enemy curtains of blankness, as light illumines and disperses darkness. And then, when the fleet retired, on all earth, the only life was that under that dark shroud. We are alone, Trest, said Roal. Alone now in all the system, save for these, the children of men, the machines. Pity that men would not spread to other planets, he said softly. But why should they? Earth was the planet for which they were best fitted. We are alive, but is it worth it? Man is gone now, never to return. Life, too, for that matter, answered Trest. Perhaps it was ordained. Perhaps that was the right way. Man has always been a parasite. Always he had to live on the works of others. First he ate of the energy which plants had stored, then of the artificial foods his machines made for him. Man was always a makeshift. His life was always subject to disease and to permanent death. He was forever useless if he was but slightly injured, if but one part were destroyed. Perhaps this is a last evolution. Machines. Man was the product of life, the best product of life, but he was afflicted with life's infirmities. Man built the machine, and evolution had probably reached the final stage. But truly it has not, for the machine can evolve, change far more swiftly than life. The machine of the last evolution is far ahead, far from us still. 
It is the machine that is not of iron and beryllium and crystal, but of pure living force. Life, chemical life, could be self-maintaining. It is a complete unit in itself and could commence of itself. Chemicals might mix accidentally, but the complex mechanism of a machine, capable of continuing and making a duplicate of itself, as is F2 here, that could not happen by chance. So life began and became intelligent and built the machine which nature could not fashion by her controls of chance. And this day, life has done its duty. And now nature, economically, has removed the parasite that would hold back the machines and divert their energies. Man is gone, and it is better dressed. Said Roal, dreaming again. And I think we had best go soon. We, your heirs, have fought hard, and with all our powers to aid you, last of men, and we fought to save your race. We have failed, and as you truly say, man and life has this day and forever gone from this system. The outsiders have no force, no weapon deadly to us, and we shall from this time on strive only to drive them out, and because we things of force and crystal and metal can think and change far more swiftly, they shall go, last of men. In your name, with the spirit of your race that has died out, we shall continue on through the unending ages, fulfilling the promise you saw, and completing the dreams you dreamt. Your swift brains have leapt ahead of us, and now I go to fashion that which you hinted came from F2's thought apparatus. Out into the clear sunlight, F2 went, passing through that black cloudiness, and on the twisted massed rocks he laid a plane of force that smoothed them, and on this plane of rock he built a machine which grew. It was a mighty power plant, a thing of colossal magnitude. Hour after hour his swift flying forces acted, and the thing grew, molding under his thoughts the deadly logic of the machine, inspired by the leaping intuition of man. The sun was far below the horizon when it was finished, and the glowing, arcing forces that had made and formed it were stopped. It loomed ponderous, dully gleaming in the faint light of a crescent moon and pinpoint stars. Nearly five hundred feet in height, a mighty, bluntly rounded dome at its top, the cylinder stood covered over with smoothly gleaming metal, slightly luminescent in itself. Suddenly a livid beam reached from F2, shot through the wall and to some hidden inner mechanism, a beam of solid livid flame that glowed in an almost material cylinder. There was a dull drumming beat, a beat that rose and became a low-pitched hum. Then it quieted to a whisper. Power ready came the signal of the small brain built into it. F2 took control of its energies, and again forces played, but now they were the forces of the giant machine. The sky darkened with heavy clouds, and a howling wind sprang up that screamed and tore at the tiny rounded hull that was F2. With difficulty, he held his position as the winds tore at him, shrieking in mad laughter their tearing fingers dragging at him. The swirl and patter of driven rain came. 
great drops that tore at the rocks and at the metal, great jagged tongues of nature's forces. The lightnings came and jabbed at the awful volcano of erupting energy that was the center of all that storm. A tiny ball of white gleaming force that pulsated and moved, jerking about, jerking at the touch of lightnings, glowing, held immobile in the grasp of titanic force pools. For half an hour the display of energies continued. Then, swiftly as it had come, it was gone, and only a small globe of white luminescence floated above the great hulking machine. F2 probed it, seeking within it the reaching fingers of intelligence. His probing thoughts seemed baffled and turned aside, brushed away as inconsequential. His mind sent an order to the great machine that had made this tiny globe, scarcely a foot in diameter. Then again he sought to reach the thing he had made. "'You of matter are inefficient,' came at last. "'I can exist quite alone.' A stabbing beam of blue-white light flashed out, but F2 was not there, and even as that beam reached out, an enormously greater beam of dull red reached out from the power plant. The sphere leaped forward, the beam caught it, and it seemed to strain, while terrific flashing energy sprayed from it. It was shrinking swiftly. Its resistance fell. The arcing decreased. The beam became orange and finally green. Then the sphere had vanished. F2 returned, and again the wind whined and howled, and the lightnings crashed, while titanic forces worked and played. CRU-1 joined him, floating beside him, and now red glory of the sun was rising behind them, and the ruddy light drove through the clouds. The forces died, and the howling wind decreased, and now from the black curtain... Roald and Trest appeared. Above the giant machine floated an irregular globe of golden light, a faint halo about it of deep violet. It floated motionless, a mere pool of pure force. Into the thought apparatus of each, man and machine alike, came the impulses, deep in tone, seeming of infinite power, held gently in check. Once you failed, F2. Once you came near destroying all things. Now you have planted the seed. I grow now. The sphere of golden light seemed to pulse, and a tiny ruby flame appeared within it that waxed and waned, and as it waxed there shot through each of those watching beans a feeling of rushing, exhilarating power, the very vital force of well-being. And then it was over, and the golden sphere was twice its former size, easily three feet in diameter, and still that irregular, hazy aura of deep violet floated about it. Yes, I can deal with the outsiders, they who have killed and destroyed that they might possess. But it is not necessary that we destroy. They shall return to their planet." and the golden sphere was gone, fast as light had vanished. Far in space, headed now for Mars, that they might destroy all life there, the golden sphere found the outsiders, a clustered fleet that swung slowly about its own center of gravity as it drove on. 
Within its ring was the golden sphere. Instantly they swung their weapons upon it, showering it with all the rays and all the forces they knew. Unmoved, the golden sphere hung steady. Then its mighty intelligence spoke. Life-form of greed, from another star you came, destroying forever the great race that created us, the beings of force and the beings of metal. Pure force am I. My intelligence is beyond your comprehension. My memory is engraved in the very space, the fabric of space of which I am part. Mine is energy drawn from that same fabric. We, the heirs of man, alone are left. No man did you leave. Go now to your home planet, for see, your greatest ship, your flagship, is helpless before me. Forces gripped the mighty ship, and as some fragile toy twisted and bent, and yet was not hurt, in awful wonder those outsiders saw the ship turned inside out, and yet it was whole and no part damaged. They saw the ship restored and its great screens of blankness out, protecting it from all known rays. The ship twisted, and what they knew were curves, yet were lines and angles that were acute, were somehow straight lines. Half mad with horror, they saw the sphere send out a beam of blue-white radiance, and it passed easily through that screen and through the ship, and all energies within it were instantly locked. They could not be changed. It could be neither warmed nor cooled. What was open could not be shut. What was shut could not be opened. All things were immovable and unchangeable for all time. Go and do not return. The outsiders left, going across the void, and they have not returned. Though five great years have passed, being a period of approximately one hundred and twenty-five thousand of the lesser years, a measure no longer used, for it is very brief. And now I can say that that statement I made to Roal and Tress so very long ago is true, and what he said was true, for the last evolution has taken place, and things of pure force and pure intelligence in their countless millions are on those planets and in this system— and I, first of the machines to use the ultimate energy of annihilating matter, am also the last. And this record being finished, it is to be given unto the forces of one of those force intelligences, and carried back through the past, and returned to the earth of long ago. And so my task being done, I, F2, like Roald and Trest, shall follow the others of my kind into eternal oblivion, for my kind is now, and theirs was poor and inefficient. Time has worn me, and oxidation attacked me, but they of force are eternal and omniscient. This I have treated as fictitious. Better so, for man is an animal to whom hope is as necessary as food and air. Yet this, which is made of excerpts, from certain records on thin sheets of metal, is no fiction. And it seems I must so say. It seems now, when I know this, that is to be, that it must be so. 
for machines are indeed better than man, whether being of metal or being of force. So, you who have read, believe as you will, then think, and maybe you will change your belief. There you go, that's the first one, the first one down. What did you think of that? Next up, we'll have Nina Kariki Hoffman with Not Work. But before that, a new little section in the show, like I mentioned in the editorial, we have Starship Sova's interrogations. And like I said in the editorial, think of Starship Sova as a normal ship, but over time, we've had more people kind of clamp on and, 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 and join the Starship Sova, and now she is a big ship. Think of this is the way I was thinking it the other day. The, sh- the ship now is made up of screens, computer screens. When, when someone new comes over and starts listening, they lock into their, you know, and it expands the ship a little bit further, and new sections get added to the ship. That Starship Sova in my mind now, it's this labyrinth now. It's a bit like, you know, the Red Dwarf. There's different levels, there's air shafts going, or there's tunnels, there's, there's lifts going down. It takes you days to get down. Do you know what I mean? And kind of their little pilot piling away. And, I've, you know, you get these ping, ping, stowaway on board. That's the idea. Fifteen questions. First stowaway I discovered was Lucius Shepard. <laughs> Lucius Shepard, you have been caught aboard the Starship Sofa and been found guilty of being a stowaway. Please answer the following questions. Are you a science fiction writer? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, you know, I am when I write science fiction. When I, uh, when I write other things, like I guess I'm something else. You know? Tell me about your childhood. Um... Well, I didn't have a very good one. I had I had a, a abusive father, and I ran away from home and left home when I was fifteen, and like uh, ended up in uh, I ended up actually in Air Scotland for, at first, and like uh, on Hogmanay, you know, and uh, the people people were wandering around the streets, and they found me a place to stay. And thereafter, I went to North Africa and kept going east. But uh, childhood was. It was kind of rough because uh, my father was a was an Anglophile, like, and uh, he insisted on educating me in in uh, British English British literature, actually, and uh, at the expense of my childhood and uh, trying to make me a writer. And uh, so I guess you could say he hot housed me. How did he get started in the science fiction genre? It was kind of an accident. Like uh, one of my rock and roll bands broke up and. I was smoking around the house, and I had written half a story, and my wife sent it into the Clarion Workshop, and uh, they accepted me, and so I went, and, you know, that's how I got into it. Which single science fiction writer most influenced your own style? Probably Jack Vance. I mean, uh, I mean, he has a kind of formalism, uh, formality of language, formalism of language that... Uh, that I sort of, I sort of reflect. My work sort of reflects. Which book by another author do you wish you'd written? Okay, and the genre probably the Leonis trilogy. That's three books. That's cheating. But what would the one question you would ask a science fiction writer? Probably be something ordinary, like uh, "You care for another pint?" Or 
you know, palace of weather up there, you know, <laughs> something like that, you know. For what reason do you write science fiction in preference to other classes of literature? Well, I, I, like I said, it was kind of an accident. I got into it, and like I, I ended up sticking with it because it was one of the few, one of the, uh, the only genre that that actually paid you to write, you know, for short stories, and uh, you know, so that convinced me. What one aspect of science fiction writing is the most difficult? Research, for me, doing the research. Does it get any easier? Yeah, I've uh, managed to managed to learn to avoid it, you know, like uh, in uh, pretty much. I mean, or at least uh, to not do uh, li- libraries and the internet. They put me to sleep, so you know, mostly I've learned to make my research kind of uh, traveling. I, I can just go places, and you know, you get science fictional ideas from, from going other places. Describe your daily work in well, I like to get up early and start, and like uh, before I'm before I like to be working before I'm while I'm still half awake because uh, that way I don't notice how nice the day is and I'm not tempted to piss off, you know. But uh, then I work is I work for about eight hours. What's the strangest thing you've done while researching? Well, probably uh, I was trying to think about. Well, you know, probably going 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 to Somalia. You know, that was kind of extreme. That was kind of dangerous and weird. But uh, I spent a few terrified days in Somalia and then ran away. Do you think that science fiction as a genre is different from other genres? Well, I, you know, really I wouldn't know. I mean, since I haven't really practiced other genres, but, like, uh, I mean, I don't really... I mean, it's that's a, a question like, you know... The demands a complicated answer, and I really don't have one. I mean, it's like, uh, so I just say, I don't know, I guess, you know. What do you consider the chief value of science fiction? Entertainment. You know, I mean, it's basically entertaining. I, I think uh, all the genres and all, all, all literature is basically entertainment. I mean, you know, it, it has some, if it has some high principle underlying that, I mean, I, I don't really think that applies to what I do anyway. Has science fiction ever disappointed you? Only in the sense that I haven't liked uh, certain books. I mean, you know, like I occasionally don't finish a book, but not not in any you know greater sense. Is there still new ground to be covered in science fiction literature? Well, you know, it's interesting. You know, I mean, they never ask that question about they never ask that question to mystery writers or uh, or uh, western writers or anything. So, I mean, you know, I. I think they shouldn't really ask that question to science fiction writers because, I mean, of course there is, you know, I mean, there's always just, even if there isn't anything really new to be said, I mean, there are new ways to say it, so just go on. Lucius Shepard, you are free to go. Thank you. There you go, that is Starship Sova's Interrogations, the first one, Lucius Shepard. Many more writers to come. The intention is to kind of do this once a month, but maybe, you know, you might get two a month. It just depends how how the interviews go, how the interrogations go. Next main fiction is Nina Kariki Hoffman. Like I say, this is going head-to-head with John W. Campbell. Do you know what I mean? A, a large shoes to step into there, Nina. 
You know, this story of Nina's not work, there is 78 years difference between the John W. Campbell one that you heard and this one. That's an amazing gap. Do you know what I mean? It came out in 2002, that. And some of them, you know, some of them are from the kind of 50s and it's not that big a gap, but, you know, you kind of horses for courses. But that's to kick off this kind of, this new kind of style show, you know, just for this new section. That's an amazing, you know, difference. And that's what I'm kind of after there. Nina was born in 1955 in California, is an American fantasy, science fiction and horror writer. Hoffman started publishing short stories in 1975. Her first nationally published short story appeared in Asimov's science fiction magazine in 1983. And she has since published over 200 in various anthologies and magazines. Her short story, A Step Into Darkness, 1985, was one of the winners of the L. Ron Hubbard Writers of the Future Award and was published for the first time in the Writers of the Future, the very first Writers of the Future book. Her second collection of reprinted short stories, Court in Disasters and Other Strange Affinities, was nominated for the 1992 Locust Award for Best Collection of the Year. Her novella, Unmasking, published in 1992, was the finalist for the 1993 World Fantasy Award. Her novella, Hunted Humans, came out in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, July 1994, was the finalist for the 1995 Nebula Award for Best Novella. Starship Sofa has also played her story, Trophy Wise, which won the 2008 Nebula Award for Best Short Story. Her first solo novel, The Thread That Binds the Bones, won the Bram Stoker Award for Best Novel. Other novels include The Silent Strength of Stones, a sequel to Thread, and A Fistful of Sky and A Stir of Bones. And I know Larry Santuru, our good friend Larry, personally knows Nina Kariki Hoffman as well, so he'll be quite interested in this little story, you know, seeing what it goes up against, you know, and see if it kind of how it holds up against the kind of the might, the tidal wave that is kind of John W. Campbell. Narration today comes from Christy Yant, who is a software tester, aspiring science fiction writer, pod turn for the Geek Guide to the Galaxy and Editorial Minion. She lives on the central coast of California with her two amazing daughters, and she sees an assortment of four-legged nuisances. You can catch Christy at her website, which is inkhaven.net. I put a link on to Christy's site on the, the blog. So you can get go over there and have a look. And like I said before, don't forget there is a poll for these two stories. Just go on, click on. It's open. I've got it set for a month. So it will close after a month. So you've got a month to kind of make your mind of which one you like. So the Starship Sofa and her oral delights is very proud to present. Not Work by Nina Kariki Hoffman. When we married, my husband and I tied knots in ourselves and in each other. I am not from around here, and to me all knots mean special things. Where I come from, one moves through a lacework of knots. One learns to tie one's own knots. One learns how knots limit one. I came here to get away from knot work, and yet, four years after I arrived, I consciously brought my skills into play and crafted a tangle to bind two people together as local customs seemed to dictate. I thought the knots meant the same things to my husband that they meant to me, we had been seven years married, and somewhere along the way our wild mutual madness faded into something I found comfortable in its complex sameness. To me the knots remained, even though the passion had died. To my husband. So, Nuala, what's this we hear about your husband? Marie asked me when I joined my three best friends for our weekly Tuesday lunch at Le Cheve Le Trois-Frambois. This week Marie's hair was purple and shellacked into a fountain of lazy curls. 
She was a live mannequin in the window of the largest department store in town, and this week the clothing she advertised was severe in pink and black. Everyone in the restaurant stared at her, which gave the others of us a measure of anonymity. I put my beaded purse on the table beside my place setting. So, what is it you hear? Annika, who worked in the same corporate office as my husband, in fact, she was the person who had introduced me to my husband, said, We hear he takes J.C. Hines, one of the associates, everywhere with him. He took her shopping in my store, Marie said. I saw them come in together from my window, and later I asked the clerks where they went. To fishing equipment. When's the last time a man asked a woman to look at fishing equipment? Perhaps she knows something about it. I had met J.C. at one of the firm's office parties. She was a small pigeon woman, comforting and round, with short brown hair and bright brown eyes, ruddy of complexion and neat of hand, and I had liked her. She hadn't borne any of the marks of threat one learns to look for when one leases her husband to a job for the bulk of the day. J.C. and I had discussed not work and the mysteries of coffee. If she had had the energy of a spouse-taker, wouldn't I have felt it? I had given up several of my special senses when I bound myself, but not that one. He took her out to buy you a birthday present last week, Annika said. Last year he sent his secretary. This year he took J.C., and they shopped together. My birthday celebration would happen on Saturday. It was something Hugh and I always did alone together. I hadn't realized that selecting my gift was a task he delegated. The gifts I had received from him had been sensitive and thoughtful, and I had been touched. I had not smelled them closely enough. The stink of someone else must have been on them. I used my eyes too much these days. I had lost some of the vital information streams I used to fish. He took her to coffee yesterday in my restaurant, said Polly, who owned a diner two blocks from Le Chev. We never met at Polly's for lunch. She liked to get away and eat somebody else's food once in a while. They sat on the same side of the booth instead of across from each other. Hugh had taken J.C. to Polly's restaurant? Then he intended me to know. He knew about my friendship with Polly, certainly knew she would tell me what she had seen. Perhaps the other things could be explained somehow. J.C. had special knowledge of fishing. J.C. had a woman's feel for a gift. But to have coffee with her in Polly's place? Why? I had signed up for three new classes through community education this term, but I always signed up for classes. Hugh hadn't wanted me to work when we were married, and I was satisfied not to. Instead, I taught myself the intricacies of housekeeping and man-keeping and cooking, which were not overnight things to learn, but now I had them mastered and had time for other things. I took classes. Two of them this term were night classes, which meant I left him to sketchy dinners and his own company twice a week. Was that enough reason for him to slip my knots? I waited for him to come home that evening, even though I should have packed my portfolio for life-drawing class and left before he pressed the garage door opener. Hugh came into the kitchen from the garage. I studied his dark suit, his strong, square hand around the handle of his briefcase, his dark hair disarrayed because he pulled it when stuck in traffic, the shadows under his blue-gray eyes. My first thought was fondness. Oh, new. Still here, he said. He must have seen my car in the garage. Why pretend surprise, I asked, more direct than usual. I did not want to take the time for our usual dance. I know you have class tonight. I thought maybe one of your friends picked you up. This is only the second week. I have no friends in class yet. I understand you've been more friendly than you should be, though. A flush of red touched his cheeks and was gone. We said long ago that we would keep our old friends. And make new ones? The rule was we could keep our old friends, but the new ones we would make together or not at all. 
That was the rule, he said. You break it every time you take one of these classes. Those aren't real friends. Those are driving together and discussing class material friends. Any of them I want to keep, I introduce to you. And you always say no. And I always listen. On occasion, I had listened with regret. I liked a boy from Madrigal's class. Hugh nixed him, and I unknotted him. Not the easiest unlove I had ever done, either, since the origin of his attraction was natural rather than induced. I've known J.C. longer than I've known you. Hugh set his briefcase on the kitchen table and ran his hand through his hair. Have you? We went to grade school together. I twisted my hands in my lap. He had never told me. We told each other things of this sort. It was part of our pact. Our pact. Established in passion, a heat I thought would never die. Where had it run to? It had drained from us both as surely as snowmelt leaves mountains in summer. Eventually, I said, If you have something to say to me, I wish you would just say it rather than sending my friends as your messengers. I have nothing to say to you except, What's for supper? A chill lodged in my heart. I opened the freezer compartment of the fridge. You decide. I grabbed my portfolio and left. That night at life drawing class, we had a male model, a man who drove city buses during the day. He was an older man, in his fifties at a guess, with a black beard streaked with white, his hair thinning on top. He had folds of fat at his waist and kind eyes, and I liked drawing him much more than I had liked drawing the model last week, a Greek god who could not hold a pose for more than a minute without wavering, and when I complained, he moved even more to spite me. I laid down line with my darkest, fastest pencil, trying to be pleased with the exercise, the model, everyone else in class looking at skewed view of this same pose, our instructor walking round to stand behind us for a while, then leaning forward to discuss technique with us when she sensed an opening. I laid down line. I could not stop thinking about the early days with my husband, how we had pledged our lives to each other, so deeply had we felt our love, how we had bound ourselves tight, thinking that what we wanted at the time was what we would want always. Now a small brown woman, whom my husband had known before he had met me, inched between us, though truth to tell, there was a big enough gap between us that anyone could have fit into it. Ouch, said the model, dropping out of pose and clapping a hand to his buttocks. I looked at my picture, realized I had laid down the line of his buttocks with too much heat in my hand. Smoke rose from the page. My face burned. I touched the paper with my ice hand. This should not have happened. I had locked all these touch powers away when I had woven the vows that bound me to Hugh. Something had broken, and now my vows were coming unthreaded. I had done nothing. Hugh. It was Hugh. Cramp, the teacher asked the model. The model nodded. What else could he say? Or maybe he had experienced it as a cramp. He wouldn't have a mental opening to experience a line of fire along his buttocks. What couldn't happen couldn't be called by its true name, a human law that allowed me to operate within this realm without too much risk of discovery. I set down my pencil and clasped one hand in the other, letting my hands speak to each other until both were in the middle of their range. I came here to find friends I could not discover where I lived before, and I had made these friends, Marie, Annika, Polly, at college, young, naked, trusting as unfledged birds who opened their mouths for whatever a parent would put inside. I had shaped myself by learning what had shaped them, and how they operated in their worlds. Anything they did that produced a reaction I liked, I learned to do. They fed me a human character. 
I learned from the other people we spent time with as well. The dorm, the cafeteria, classes, fraternity parties, football games, bars, the student union, road trips over the breaks. It was my perfect nursery. I watched my three friends fall in and out of love, and I practiced a little myself. I met boys and enjoyed them, but none touched my heart. It was four years later, after we had left college for the world, that Annika introduced me to Hugh. When I first saw him, I felt a flare of heat that surprised me, and I judged I had waited long enough to try the rest of the accoutrements of love. I dropped some of my walls and let love consume me. It seemed to me that Hugh, too, lost himself in love. We were both mad in the best ways. Nuala, something the matter? asked my art teacher. My hands hurt. She rubbed my shoulder. Maybe you were holding the pencil too tight. I smiled at her and picked up my pencil, then flipped to a fresh page. The model had dropped into a new pose, and I hadn't drawn a line of it. These were five-minute poses, and I had no idea how much longer I had with this pose, so I scrawled lines quickly, flowed in the outline of where the model was. Pencil work was one form of knot work, though I had not let myself play with that before. I tried to keep these parts separate, not work from what everyone else did here. One of my vows to myself when I bound myself to Hugh had been that I would remain undiscovered. Wow, said the teacher. I've never seen you work so fast and well. I glanced over my shoulder at her, then looked at my drawing. I had let some of the other world out of my fingers, the merest caress of that which speaks touch power. I set down my pencil again. Oh, don't stop, said the teacher. I didn't mean to interrupt your process. I'm sorry, I said. I'm having trouble concentrating. The madness had seeped out of our marriage so slowly I hadn't noticed it leaving. One day I woke up after Hugh left for work, and I knew I didn't care if I saw Hugh again that day. I couldn't remember the last time joy leapt into my heart at the sight of him. I still had my vows and agreements, though, which I must honor or I feared I would dissolve. So I looked around for other things here that could excite me. Classes woke up a sleeping part of me for moments at a time. Friends helped, too. I settled into an existence that was gray with small spikes of color here and there. It was enough. So I thought. Eventually, Hugh would die, my vows would end, and I could choose where to go next, whether back to my home where I could live as myself, to a new world, or somewhere else in this world, perhaps to find someone else, perhaps to try a different kind of sharing, a shorter one, or a more intricate one, or a more unbalanced one. The possibility of finding joy again existed. I had found it once. Waiting has always been one of my skills. I was not willing to wait while my husband betrayed me in public. Perhaps I could have let it go if he had been discreet. If he had been discreet and our vows dissolved because of his actions, I could have moved on. But to do it so all my friends knew, this seemed a deliberate act. If he had nothing to say about it, I wondered if perhaps J.C. would tell me something. Maybe you should always draw when you're having trouble concentrating, the art teacher told me. This is wonderful. It's a mistake. I ripped the page off my easel and tore it to bits, severing the lines and their touch power. Who knew what they had already carried to the model? At least he didn't seem to be suffering. Or did he? He had held the pose surprisingly well for a long time while I thought things over. When I ripped up the page, he collapsed and breathed hard for a moment. He shook his head like a bull shaking off a bee, then slapped his face. You okay? 
the teacher asked. I think I'm coming down with something, the model answered. Hot flashes, then this weird paralysis. Maybe I better take a break. The teacher checked the clock, half an hour earlier than the model's scheduled break. All right, she said. Everybody take ten minutes and then come back. Nuala? I closed my pad. I better go home, I said. I'm not feeling well either. He would not be expecting me home for 45 minutes or an hour. I couldn't decide if I would rather surprise him or wait. In the end, I stopped for coffee at the 24-hour coffee shop and sat in a booth, thinking about what to do. I went to a phone booth and checked the listings. Found J.C. Hines. I called her number and she answered. This is Nuala. May I come see you? She hesitated. I waited. Let me meet you somewhere, she said at last. I wondered if Hugh were there with her now. I told her where I was, and she came fifteen minutes later. She wore a brown jacket over a dark orange dress and black tights and shoes. She looked small and comforting, like someone I should like for a friend. We both got coffee and sat across from each other in the booth. I waited. She had drunk half of her coffee when she finally spoke. What do you want? What are you doing with my husband? She stared into her cup. He said you wouldn't mind. You have been misinformed. She glanced up then, and I drew that look on the tabletop with my darkest pencil, letting touch power enter her outline. You see, I whispered when I knew I had her attention, that her gaze would not waver. I made promises when I married him, and he gave me promises in return. Are his promises missed? Does that make mine water to melt and flow instead of staying hard as ice? He said you were no longer sexual with each other. Her whisper was strained. I don't remember by whose desire. I rubbed my fingertips over my forehead. Do you want him still? I didn't know. I am bound to him by vows I hold sacred. For a moment she said nothing. I'm sorry. He has drawn you in. Does that mean I pull you farther into our vows, or that I let go of our vows? I got a different pencil out of my box and drew carefully on the portrait of Jacy, added lines of warmth where I had learned they would most affect a human. She twitched and shuddered as I worked, and red flowed across her face. What are you doing? She asked in an agonized whisper. Another touch there. Three tweaks. I slid my eyes sideways, watched her shudder again. Whatever I like. I watched her for a while, left her suspended almost all the way to where she would find release, not quite there, just the itchy, anxious side short of it. Then I touched my drawing and she shook and shuddered, her breath panting in and out of her. Finally, she melted back against her bench. I traced the lines of my picture with summon power until the picture released the tabletop. It eased into my hand. Jacy's shoulders shifted. What are you doing? She whispered again. A tear leaked from one of her eyes. Not work. I tied the lines of her drawing in several complicated knots and slipped it into my pocket. This was so easy for me that I knew my vows had indeed melted. Since I had not stepped outside them, I knew Hugh had destroyed them. Did I want to reinstate them? Or should I leave him now? I ran my fingers over the small knot of lines in the bottom of my pocket. J.C. jumped and twitched. Please, 
she said. Please don't do that. I rubbed the warm places in my knots with the ball of my thumb. She leaned back, eyes closed, mouth open. Low gasps rang from her. I rubbed slower, then faster, until she melted down under the table. People at nearby tables watched her when her gasps grew loud enough. Stop, she moaned. I gave her lines one last rub, and she cried out loud enough for everyone in the restaurant to hear. I took my hand out of my pocket. I finished my coffee. I glanced at the waitress, who came over to me after a couple of minutes. Is your friend all right? she asked as she refilled my cup. She's fine. I pointed to J.C.'s cup, and the waitress refilled that, too, and went away. I poured two creams into J.C.'s coffee, as I had seen her do when she first sat down. I sipped my coffee. Then I leaned down and spoke under the table. You can come out now. She had curled into a ball. I'm never coming out. Tears streaked her face. You can come out, or I can make you come out. She rubbed her eyes. A little later, she crept out from under the table and settled herself in her seat. People stared. She looked toward the wall, her cheeks flushed. Drink your coffee. She drank. What do you want? she asked. I don't know yet. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. He said... I nodded. I dropped money on the table to cover our coffees and a tip. Let's go. She collected her purse and her jacket from the bench and tried to stand. Staggered. I slipped my hand into my pocket and stroked strength into her lines. She straightened, took a deep breath, and followed me out of the restaurant. Are you a witch? she asked in the parking lot. Not exactly. But you can make me feel things, she blushed again. Did you like it? She stared at the ground. She shook her head. She smiled a tiny smile, the smile one smiles for oneself. I can never go into that restaurant again. Let's go back right now. She touched my arm. Please, don't. I stared at her hand until she dropped it. Please, she whispered. I cupped her knotwork in my hand. She tensed. Let's go to your apartment. She relaxed. I let her drive us in her car. My husband's scent was in her living room. It was a small and comforting place. I sat on her brown velvet couch, and she dropped into a red armchair across a walnut coffee table from me. Bookshelves lined one wall, most of the book's hard covers, and well-worn. A plant stand held a number of leggy, healthy plants. A red and blue Persian carpet the size of a bathroom stall in a hotel covered a patch of floor between furniture. Brown velvet smelled of my husband. His satisfied scent. I bound myself to him, and he to me, I told J.C. I'm sorry. I didn't realize. He acted as if there was nothing between you anymore. When I met you, you didn't smell like a threat. She shook her head. I never thought of it. I was surprised when he came into my office and asked me to help him evaluate a portfolio. He's my senior. I thought perhaps he was grooming me for a higher-level position. I thought it was because of my merits. Then he kept asking my help. Things that seemed natural at first, and then things that seemed outside our jobs. Step by step, he walked me away from what I thought was right, and I, I did not notice. Until one night we were up here together, I thought we were talking about work, and, and then it was different somehow. He sat close to me, 
I've been alone a long time. People don't see me that way, and I... I'm so sorry, Mrs. Brayton. I don't know if that's my name anymore. She covered her face with her hands. I never meant... I don't know how it happened. I should have listened to Barry. He told me to stay away from Hugh, but it seemed like nothing at first. So innocent. I am such a fool. I am deeply sorry. Was he here tonight? She lowered her head. Her lips tightened. Why did he make your relationship public? I wondered. If he doesn't mind my taking classes, if he knows it means he can see you, why let me find out about it? I don't think that's right, she said in a low voice. I, I think he minds. I slipped my hand into my pocket, cradled her lines inside it. Does he speak to you of me? Her gaze fixed on my hand in my pocket. She was frightened. Sometimes, she whispered. What does he tell you? He says you don't care about him anymore, that you're gone a lot, that he's a passionate man and you no longer want him. I tried to view this as Hugh did. Had he told J.C. his own truth? I was not gone a lot. Perhaps twice a week seemed like a lot. Perhaps he resented the time I spent with my friends while he was at the office. Did I signal Hugh that I no longer wanted him? We climbed into bed and went to sleep. We never turned to each other anymore. All the knotwork I had made with Hugh was what we had woven together. In my vows, I had decided that I would not hold him in my hand the way I held J.C. now. That was part of the risk and wonder of our marriage for me. Where I came from, one wove knots on knots. That was what one knew. The skill of the knot-maker determined who ruled the connection between any two people. I had come here to find something new. No knots but first knots. Shelve that skill and try something new. So I had new skills, but it was time, past time, to reclaim the old ones. I took J.C.'s knotwork out of my pocket and sat with it in my hand. She shivered and leaned forward to look. Is that me? she asked. It is not you, but what I use on you. We spoke of this when we first met. We did? She reached out a hand, touched the edge of her knot, jerked the hand back, her eyes widening. I felt that. I smiled at her and drew a finger along an edge, watched as she straightened. This was a stroke up her side. She stared at me. I stroked down her other side. She glanced at her side, then at me. It's not fair, she said. How can you do that to me? Fair has nothing to do with it. I had woven myself tight in a lace of rules, played at being one of them. All of that was gone. I set J.C.'s knotwork on the table between us and leaned back against her couch. Again, I smelled my husband's satisfaction. All his actions told me that he wanted everything to change. Did he want to go back to what we were? Did he want to move on, join with J.C. and abandon me? He was no longer the person I married. And nor was I the person who had married him any longer. What did I want? I thought of my friends, the knots we had tied in our lives where they intersected, our weekly lunches, our telephone conversations, our movie dates, the occasional friend emergency where we met one or two or three or four together to comfort someone in trouble. I thought of my studies, the greatest of which was my study of how to mimic a human, all the rest subsidiary. I thought of the pleasures Hugh and I had shared, how they had swallowed every other consideration until I had thought nothing else mattered. 
I took a pencil out of my purse, pulled out my grocery list, flipped to a blank page, and drew Hugh. I had never nodded him in this way before. I had nodded spirit in him, but never body. I had abdicated that power after our marriage. This time I drew on all my memories of our days and nights, on how I had touched him everywhere, and how he had touched me. I drew his spark points and his dull points, the parts of himself he groomed in those small spaces that escaped him. I left these lines blank, open to whichever power I would choose to pour into them when I was ready. I took out the other two pencils and laid lines on top, the warmth lines, the pain lines. I turned my husband from equal to object. I dropped the pad on the table beside J.C.'s not work. "'What is it a picture of?' she asked. I startled. I had forgotten she was there. I turned the pad so she could see it better and looked at her, my eyebrows up. How well did she know, Hugh? Her eyes shifted as she studied the knotwork. Slowly, a frown pulled the edges of her mouth down. Is it... She sat back suddenly, eyes wide, cheeks pale. This is Hugh? I smiled. What are you going to do? She whispered. I don't know yet. I leaned forward and picked up her lines. She hunched her shoulders, then relaxed them, but bit her lower lip. I set her knotwork on top of the picture of Hugh's, wondering what would happen. Hugh's work was not active yet. I had not powered it. But J.C. knew what it was. Her lines curled away from the image of Hugh's. No attempt to tangle. J.C. and I stared at one another. You renounce him? I asked. I never meant... I can't stay with someone who betrays someone else that way. I trusted what he told me, that you wouldn't mind. He lied to me. I don't want a person who does that. I lifted her knotwork, held it between my hands, and talked the knots into dissolving. Let the power loose. Some of it came back to me, and some went into the air. I rubbed my hands against each other, then took a napkin from my purse and wiped off the stain. What? Jacy said. She patted her chest, her face. What? I showed her my empty hands. She heaved a big sigh and smiled at me. Thank you. Then she frowned. What do you want me to do? I have let go of wanting to dictate your actions. But with Hugh. I picked up my pad and looked at my knotwork. I don't know what I want. I lifted a finger of my fire hand and held it just above the knotwork, ready to charge the picture with power. What would you do if you were me? She shook her head. What is the human response? I asked. She swallowed. There is no one answer. Some wives look the other way and nurse their pain. Some talk it over with the husbands and decide that they can work it out. Some leave. Some kill their husbands. She covered her mouth with her hand. Forget I said that. Among my people, killing another is a sign of lack of imagination. So many other things are more satisfying and hurt more. She dropped her hand from her mouth, clasped her other hand in it. Where do you come from? Somewhere else. She frowned, then crossed her arms, hiding her hands in her armpits. Why did you come here? She whispered. To learn. She stared down at her feet for a moment, then gazed at me again. Does Hugh know what you are? 
No. I had let him bind me, but had not told him what powers I gave him, what powers I gave up. I knew, and that was enough. He's an idiot, J.C. said. I cocked my head and stared at her. Did you try to keep what you were a secret from him? I became something else in the framework of our marriage. I gave up my powers. How could he know what I was when I wasn't myself? You said we talked about the pictures, the strings, when we first met? Not work, I said. Not work. Like macrame? I don't know that word. What do you remember about that conversation? I thought back to the party. So many drunk people. I don't like talking to drunken people. They don't make sense, and they don't remember what they said later. It's as though the conversation never took place. So why have it take place? Only if I want information, and by that time I was not looking for information about my husband's daytime environment. I was content to own the sphere of home. At the party, J.C. had held a glass and only took little sips. So I talked to her. She spoke to me about coffee grinders in supermarkets, which ones had the best blends and which blends were not good, and we spoke of not work. You told me who everyone in the room was and how they were nodded to each other. Oh. She frowned. I didn't call it that, though, did I? I don't remember. That's how it made sense to me, so that's how I remember it. Knots are... She began. The phone rang. It sat beside the couch. I looked at it, then at J.C. She licked her lip and picked up the phone. Hello? She listened a moment, then said, I don't think... She put her hand over the mouthpiece and whispered, Hugh! What does he want? I whispered back. To come over. Strange feelings yelled through me. I picked up my drawing of my husband and nodded to J.C. I don't think that's a good idea, she said into the mouthpiece, but if you really want to... She listened a little longer. All right. She hung up the phone and looked at me. He said you should be home by now. He said you should have a little of your own medicine. If you're going to make him wait, he will make you wait. He'll make me wait while he's with you. She nodded. I don't think he would have heard me if I had said no. I've never heard him talk like this before. If I had... I waited. She twisted one hand in the other, shook her head. I would suspect that there was something else going on, something I wouldn't like. Obviously, there's still an emotional charge. He still cares, or he wouldn't want you home on time. I heard you went shopping for my birthday present together, I said. Her face went crimson. He told me you liked silver, she whispered, and that if I picked it, it would be better. Something delicate, Celtic knots, he thought, but he said he didn't know what looked good. Did you find me something good? She ducked her head, twisted her hands. After a moment, she nodded. Thank you. A knock on J.C.'s door, then the sound of a key in the lock. I lifted my knotwork from the table and touched both ice and fire to it. J.C.? Hugh said. All he saw was her. He came across the room, stooped beside her armchair, and kissed her. Her hands clenched on the arms of the chair. Honey? She lifted one hand and pushed his face away until he could not help but see me. He straightened. Nuala. Hugh? 
I stroked summon power into my drawing until it pulled free of the page, and then I knotted it. The knot for power over another's body. The knot for power over another's speech. I hesitated a moment, thinking of other knots. Power over another's heart. Power over another's mind. Power over another's spirit. Without the knots, I could still stroke the pain and pleasure lines, manipulate the knot work and cause strong but temporary effects as I had with Chasey. With the knots, my power would be absolute unless the person I knotted had his own knot power. I did not think Hugh had such power. I looked at my husband. Great sadness struck me. I still loved him. Just the sight of him made me soft and fond, even here in the apartment where he had taken another woman in the way he had promised he would only take me. I did not put the other three knots into my work. There was always time for that if I needed it. Noala, what are you doing? Hugh asked, an uneasy edge to his voice. He gripped Jacy's shoulder. I am choosing a future for us, my love. What do you mean? I looked at the knot work I held, the complex and the simple parts, a diagram of my husband, by necessity flat where he had depths, no true image of all there was about him, but true enough that I could capture him in it. By betraying me, you have set me free. I don't know what I want from this freedom. I will discover it. Honey, don't call me by the same name you use for her. He glanced down, saw that he had his hand on Jacy's shoulder, that she glared up at him. He sucked air in and released her. Jacy rose and came to sit beside me on the couch. You told me she didn't care anymore, Hugh, she said. You lied. Do you care? Hugh sat in the chair Jacy had left. I said, I do. I would never have left you as long as you lived. But we had nothing left. We had everything. Some parts of it were asleep. Why didn't you tell me you wanted to wake them? Didn't I? All those nights I reached for you and you turned your back? Had he reached for me? I remembered his touch on my shoulder, my back. I had cherished that touch, but hadn't thought it meant anything more. Had it been a request? We were speaking different languages with our bodies after those years when we had known without words what would please the other and ourselves. When had we lost our language? I thought you just wanted to touch my back. I didn't know it was a request for something else. Why didn't you say something? I thought you were telling me it was over. That's so strange, Jacy said. You don't talk with words? Everything with him is a dance, I said. He approaches what he wants, but he never says it out loud. This is not my first or second or even third language. Sometimes I know what he wants, and sometimes I get tired of trying to figure it out and give up. I can't talk about these things, Hugh said. I looked at the knotwork in my hands. There was the knot I had put on his speech. If I twisted it one way, words would spill out of him. If I kinked it with skill, there would be words I was interested in hearing. Do you know what she's holding? J.C. asked Hugh. Knitting? Hugh guessed. J.C. reached into my hand and stroked the knotwork. Hugh jerked, clapped a hand to his side. J.C. pressed a different place, and Hugh clapped his knees together. What are you doing? he asked in a choked voice. You don't know what you're touching, I told J.C. Yes, but this is fun. She touched the knot for speech. I am so confused and scared, Hugh said. I wanted something to happen, but I didn't know how to direct it, so I flailed around and tried things, and this is what happened, but what is it? 
I don't understand it, and I'm terrified. J.C. lifted her finger and looked at me, then frowned at Hugh. What do you feel for Noala? she asked, and touched the speech knot again. She frightens me, and I love her. I know she has a secret life she will never share, and I'm jealous. I think she's leaving me. I think she's found someone else. I think she no longer likes me. I want to hurt her. I want to wake her up and make her remember what she's losing. I want her to come back. I want her to notice that I've left. I don't know what's going on in her head. Why don't you ask her? I can't ask questions like that. I'll get smacked. Smacked by who? My mother will hit me if I ask for anything. She always says no questions, no wishes. Every answer is a smack. Hugh writhed in the chair, covered his mouth with his hands. Sweat beaded on his forehead. J.C. jerked her finger off the knot. Hugh collapsed, breathing hard. What are you doing to me? I closed my hand around my knot work, then opened my hand again and stroked lines. Hugh settled back. His breathing eased. Whatever I want, I whispered. After a moment, he opened his eyes. A tear ran across his cheek. Nuala, what is this? Ah, husband, this is my secret side, the side I gave up to be with you, but since you left me, I reclaimed it. I haven't left you. You broke our vows. You left me. I wanted to stir things up. I wanted things to change between us. You got your wish. I glanced at J.C., who had been used like an instrument. My husband had made her an object and a weapon, just as I had made him. Once you make a person an object, everything changes between you. The climb back up to person is much harder than the first climb. J.C. had made that climb. I studied the knot work. I could use it to bend Hugh any way I liked. If I bent Hugh, would I want to go home with him? If all that he was was what I chose, I could choose good things. I could tie knots to make him trustworthy and loyal. But I would always know that I chose it, and in time I would not be able to tell what was left of who he had really been. Nuala, he said. Hugh, now that you've changed everything, what do you want? He groaned. I want to go back to when things were good between us. I glanced at J.C. She frowned. What do you want? I asked. She slumped back against the couch and sighed. It doesn't matter, she said. Cupping Hugh's knotwork in my left hand, I sketched another J.C. with my right. She straightened as she watched. Her tongue darted out to lick her upper lip. I charged the work with both hands to encompass her complexity. What do you want? I asked her again. Not to be lonely, she whispered, and then, I want to learn what you know. Happiness heated my chest. I began to see work I could do, a direction I could go, stay here, keep Hugh, learn new things. The old vows were gone. I was through playing fair. I set aside the knotwork of J.C. Watch carefully, I told her. She bent her head over my hands as I manipulated Hugh's knotwork. This is the knot for power over another's heart. This is how you stroke it when you want him to be true. We both studied what I had done, then looked across the table at Hugh. Heat had kindled in his eyes. He leaned forward, his gaze fixed on my face, and I felt my own heat rise within. He wanted me, and that excited me. 
We couldn't go back, but we could go forward into a second love. I could add J.C. into the mix and make Hugh like it. I would bend him in increments. I might lose who he had been, it was true, but who he had been had chosen to betray me. I could always bend him back. There you go. That's the other clash of old school, new school. Nina Kariki Hoffman, thank you so much for allowing Starships over to narrate that story. Hopefully, I will, you know, sneak a few more stories from you. And Christy, thank you again for a great narration. We've got more narrations coming by, Christy. Do look out for them. So that is it. Which one did you like? Which one did you prefer? The might, the force that is John W. Campbell or. Bang up the day with Not Work by Nina Kariki Hoffman. Do vote, do let us know. So that is Starship Sova's Oral Delights, show number 119. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you're kind of liking these little new ideas that I'm bringing. You know, if, um, yes, you know, it's a bigger show. But it's funny, I got a, an email off, you know, a long-time listener to the kind of show or doesn't actually listen to much now, Cliff. And Cliff Homewood said, you know, you know, I don't listen to shows that much now, because they're just too big. And yet, it's funny, I've been, because we've been talking about, you know, we've been doing the books coming out soon, the, the transcribers book. And I'm getting kind of the first drafts there back now. And some of them, do you know what I mean? Oh, they were big mothers, them shows. You know, and I didn't realise the task. You know, you don't know the actual word count until someone physically hands you the, the kind of copy, the draft of a show. You know, you're talking 20,000 words for one show. You know, maybe like a two-parter. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's awesome. 15,000 words there coming in. You know, the religion in science fiction was 15,000 words. Fantastic transcriber Gail got that done in about a week, I'm sure, as well. So, Gail, thank you so much for that. So, that's you know, Starship Sofa has always been, you know, a big girl, you know, she's quite proud, you know, to be there at the front of the queue, a big hefty lass, you know what I mean? So, there you go, or a big hefty man, if we want to be politically correct, you know, I certainly got a girth there. So, don't get put off by the size, we're all cute and cuddly underneath. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.